What's up, everybody? This is Peter Nesbitt from Team Pay, and you're listening to Awkward Conversations, tales from the finance department. Finance professionals are often forced to be the bad guy, which can lead to some uncomfortable conversations with employees about business purchases. On this show, I sit down with finance leaders to discuss their most awkward conversations and what they've learned throughout their careers. Listeners can earn free CPE credit for listening to this podcast. Just download the Earmark CPE app from the App Store or visit earmarkcpe.com. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Greg Kite. Greg is a former math teacher turned CPA and controller. He's also a cartoonist and stand-up comedian. Greg has created numerous NASBA-certified CPE courses that have been heard by tens of thousands of CPAs. He's also the co-host of the true crime fraud podcast, Oh My Fraud. Thanks for being here, Greg. It's great to be here. So excited to be uh, a guest on Awkward Conversations because uh, that, that feels like where I live all the time. Yeah, our podcast is called Awkward Conversations because finance is often forced to ask employees awkward questions about company spend. Like, why didn't you get this purchase approved in advance? Or why did you put 20K in the corporate card when our policy only says you can do, you know, 5K? So I love um, if one of the most um, awkward conversations you've had in your corporate finance professional life about an expense, like was it in policy, did it have a receipt? Um, do you have any great stories like this? I, I do. And and it's, and it's crazy because it's actually not, it wasn't even a conversation with an employee. It was a conversation with my boss. Yeah. Uh, one of the things just, I, I mean, I guess maybe to, to not to bury the lead on this whole thing, I got, I got hired, the company that I currently work for, I got hired away from an accounting firm to work for this company. And I knew mm-hmm. there was, I knew there was this one weird account where there was a loan to the manager. He's a, he was a manager of the company, wasn't one of the mm-hmm. owners. He was a manager. And, uh, and once I got into the company, I realized exactly like the history of this mm. loan and and what it was was this and, and is that every so he was he didn't really have a contract he kind of had a contract with the company mm. so the company we didn't pay him directly as a w2 employee we paid his management s corp his salary and there uh. wasn't a, there wasn't like a, a written document that says here's how much my management fee is every year but the negotiated amount was uh, $140,000 for him for managing this property. And mm-hmm. throughout the year, he would he would have checks printed for his management fees, mm-hmm. written payable to his S-Corp, and he wouldn't really keep track of how many checks he had written during the year. And at the mm-hmm. end of the year, the and this was the man, my manager at the accounting firm, she would mm-hmm. add up how many checks he'd written to himself and go, hey, you were only supposed to get paid 140000 or whatever it was that year. You wrote yourself checks for $170,000. What do you want me to do? And he's like, yeah, let's just make that a loan to me. Cool. And and it was like, and so then I come in, the, the, the company did not have an accountant before I started working mm-hmm. there. And so the first, the, the first year I'm there ends, the first fiscal year ends and I, and I go, Oh, oh my gosh, what, what the hell is this? <laughs> and, and I had, so I have to have the awkward conversation with my boss going, Hey, uh, dude, you're only supposed to get paid this 140,000 you paid yourself. Uh, way more than that. Uh, what and, and you know, and so it's it's everything you're talking about. Where it's like it's you know, is it? Well, I don't know. You tell me where where it fits in there. Is it? Wow. It's against company policy. Yeah, you you know, we don't have a policy of loaning money to our managers. That's not like a policy. Mm-hmm. It's understood what he's supposed to get paid. There was no oh, and also the other wonderful thing: there was no loan document supporting this at all. So the company was just totally in the lurch for mm-hmm. this money that was being loaned him. But but here's the other crazy thing: when you when you look at it from from like the fraud side of things, the mm-hmm. crazy thing too is he. So he would write these checks. He did not have, and this is I'm convinced this is the one reason why he's not why there was no criminal proceedings mm-hmm. against him ever, is that he he never had. Uh, the authority to sign any checks. So every mm. check that he got 
uh, was signed by an owner in the LLC. So we the, the LLC has, gosh, dozens of owners, but mm-hmm. it has a small subset of those who are managing members. And it's those managing members who have signing authority on the checking account. So yep. even with that, he, there was one main guy he'd go to to get, to get checks signed. But even then, it's like, here's a stack of checks. Here's the check for the phone bill. Here's a check for the power bill. Here's a check for me. Wow. Here's a check for... So it was just... And the only way that the, that the managing member could know that he was getting paid more than he was supposed to is if that managing member is keeping a set of books oh, wow. to keep... Tra- I, was this loan just rolling over? Was there interest being accrued? Was it eventually paid off? Like, how did this get solved? Okay, they, so well, so first off, let me let me tell you this before before we get too far away from from the the yeah. the signers. They so like I said, it's a subsuit set of all the owners mm-hmm. who had the signing authority. So they were embarrassed by what had happened and that he had taken all this extra money. And the guy was he was in his sixties at this point too. So they know that if they fired him, there's no way he's going to get another job. He can't he yeah, can't pay yeah. back. A uh, seven hundred and fifty because that's what it got up to is like seven hundred thousand oh dollars with, with accrued interest. So yeah, so to answer yeah. your question, yes, there was accrued interest because again we had to have our financial statements re- reviewed and presented according to GAAP. You can't have zero interest on the loan according to GAAP. Mm-hmm. So there was interest accruing on this. Uh, he had never, and that was the other thing crazy. He'd never made any regular payments to this loan until after I got there and I started to have an, and, and the other awkward conversation I had to have was with the owners going, Hey, I know that my boss at the accounting firm said, you guys understood what was going on here. I want to make sure you really understand. So maybe not awkward, mm. but like b- difficult and bad yeah, news. Yeah. What eventually happened is that the owners, because he kept the, the manager kept substantiating. Mm-hmm. They had this property, this real real estate Mm-hmm. That was the collateral for this loan, but again, there was no there was no loan document, so it was just like a handshake mm-hmm. going, "Hey, I'll pay it back, and if not, you can have this property." And it's like, you know, wow. if 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 like turds hit fans, he's yeah. not going to get you right. Here's my here's my property. I'm, I'm my bad. Yep. But what the what the what the board, basically the subset of owners did is they said, "Hey." This is not okay. You need to get a real, and this is where it gets so, even more convoluted. You need mm. to get a real loan from a bank on your real estate, give the proceeds to us to pay yep. off this loan. Mm-hmm. And that's, so it's like, we're requiring you to do that. So he, so he goes to the, so our, our company, we have like mm-hmm. $20 million worth of loans yep. with one of the, with a, with a bank that operates here in Utah. And he he went to that bank and said, "Hey, you have to give me a loan on this property, or else we're going to refinance all of our loans with a different oh, no. bank." So he so he totally went from like uh, asset misappropriation to corruption right yeah. there. And they and they and they gave him a loan, but it wasn't. It was like for four hundred and twenty thousand dollars. So it wasn't enough to pay off the whole thing. He did own. Some property he he owned some some property in a sister company mm-hmm. of the one that he worked for. So they also forced him to sign those over to the company, even with those be and they overvalued them. They ge- they gave him mm-hmm. a generous valuation because I know what they were worth, and they gave him probably a hundred thousand dollars more than what those shares were worth. Mm-hmm. They they credited him a hundred thousand dollars more than they were worth. And even with that, he still did, wasn't able to pay it all off. He eventually mm-hmm. got let go, not because of this, but because he wait, he overspent our annual budget by like $170,000 wow. and wouldn't really. And I was like, this is not okay. What, how are we going to make, what are we going to do? And he's like, oh, it'll be fine. And it's like, no, <laughs> no it's not going to be. Wow. So he, so again, because the owners were so embarrassed of the, of the, the quagmire they'd got themselves yep. in, they couldn't fire him because of the loan. Oh, so they man. fired him because of overspending. And when they fired him, he still, even with all this other, you know, this other loan on that he got on his property, mm-hmm. that him transferring the, 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 this ownership rights and this other real estate, that it's still, he was still upside down on this loan by like 75,000 bucks. So on his way out, they forgave, they just wrote that off. Forgave they it, said, yeah. okay, get out of here and we'll write off the other 75,000 bucks on this Man. loan. So that's how. Yeah, that, that's, that's heck of an awkward conversation. You know, I think, you know, we see the awkward conversations in employees all the time of like, you know, where's the receipt, but the awkward conversations with your boss, especially like the CEO frequently is like, so you spent, um, um, you know, a hundred thousand dollars of 
Amex points for your personal family vacation, even though those should have been you know, used by the company and things like that. So there's sort of like inside dealing, self-dealing sort of stuff. Um, yeah, it's, that's, uh, that's, that's super awkward. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, and obviously it was, you know, it, I, I don't even think it, it qualifies as awkward, just the, the conversations that I had to have with him about the overspending mm-hmm. and the fact that, you know, that he, because how do you, because this guy gave me my job and he mm-hmm. gave me all the raises that I had since then. And I really liked this job. So there was, there was, and, and yeah. it was, he, he, it wasn't, he didn't like have a mafioso vibe mm-hmm. about him, yeah. but it wasn't, it wasn't uncommon for him to talk about like loyalty as being something that was important to him in the company. So there was that too, where you're like going, okay, my job, I, I am the controller. I'm supposed to control mm-hmm. things like spending and, yeah. and, and make sure that our risk exposure is controlled. But the only way I can do that is by calling you out on, on your practices that don't align with things to add to the interview checklist. Next time you look for a new role, I was at a company once in the recently departed CFO was married to the recently departed controller. You can only imagine um, the conflict of interest and the challenge um, challenge there. Right. Yeah. That's man. You can't yeah, get all sort of inside dealing. I never think some questions I never think to ask in an interview is like, so like how much sort of like questionable behavior do you see happening? <laughs> you know, that's the kind of thing you just don't ask in an interview. And like, like how, how do you even suss that out? And you know, as you, you're right. looking for right. a role. Right. So, wow. hey, so this company I'm about to work for on the sketchy scale is, it, you know, where does it land? So, yeah. 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 Like the CEO had hired his, like his, you know, uh, anyway, it was, it was, it was a lot of interesting inside dealing. Well, I want to segue a little bit to, you know, you have, um, such a unique angle on what we're talking about here. Can you tell me a little bit more what you do? Uh, <laughs> What it's 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 a it's a basket of things. So yeah. I so I'm a licensed CPA here in the state yep. of Utah. I, I worked at a CPA firm, but but basically just long enough to get my required hours mm-hmm. for licensure, and I was hired away by this company. So so I'm a I'm I, I'm a controller for. Uh, I mean, te- technically, it's three real estate companies and a storage company, mm-hmm. but yep. they're all it, the ownership is all basically the same so mm-hmm. um so even though technically it's four different companies that i'm a controller for it i, I look mm-hmm. at it as as one big job so that, yeah. that's the day job but then i i've got all sorts of all sorts of side projects that i'm constantly working on like you like you mentioned mm-hmm. i do i do cartoons i've got this cartooning series for the mm-hmm. accounting profession called exposure drafts mm-hmm. um you can find those are you can find those on uh, in, instagram is probably the best yeah. place to find the catalog for that I do. I, I do a podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I did a podcast for like ten years with this great guy named Jason Blummer out of South Carolina mm-hmm. called the Thrivecast. Um, I did that for ten years, and then I started a new podcast with Caleb Newquist called Oh My Fraud, which that's a yeah. super exciting project because I love fraud. Uh, talking about it, it's <laughs> it's it's incredibly interesting, especially when you get inside stories because I've got a yeah. pretty, I got a good story about mm-hmm. my own thing. Um, and then, and the cool thing is, so we, so we work with, with Earmark who does this podcast Mm -hmm. too, and they're able to, uh, to give people free auditing and assurance CPE. If you Mm -hmm. listen to the podcast and answer a question and then the other, this is, this is awesome. This is, this is the latest project that I've been working on that I'm totally, totally excited about. Um, so the two things that I, that I do CPE on the two primary things Mm -hmm. I do CPE on fraud and ethics and so, uh, so Blake Oliver, the guy who runs Earmark, is like, "Hey, we need to have an ethics podcast." And yeah. I go, "I've got a great idea, and I don't. Know, I think you will not be interested in it <laughs> at all." And I said, yeah. "I want to do a, I want to do a thing called Drunk Ethics, where me and a comedian partner I have, who also happens to have his MBA, where mm-hmm. we 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 spend an hour talking about behavioral ethics." while we take seven shots during that hour. And so we get progressively more and more drunk during the course of this. Like of this drunk po- history. 
Yeah, like kind of, kind of, yeah. but but yeah. So we so we did four episodes that they should. I think they're supposed to be released sometimes this month, and it. I'm not exactly sure. It's it's so mm-hmm. funny right now. I don't even. I can't even direct you or anybody else on how to listen yeah, yeah. to them, other than just they're coming. And I recorded them, and they're pretty amazing. <laughs> they're pretty yeah. amazing. So. Well- yeah, well, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I'd love to d- double click in your comedy experience. Like, how did you get into comedy in the first place? Oh, okay. So, so like you said, I used to be in, in my my old career. I was a math teacher, mm-hmm. uh, and what I, I taught I taught eighth grade math for basically a decade. And the math when you're the math that I'm teaching in eighth grade, it's it's not none of the kids are failing because they're too dumb. The math isn't that hard when you're in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. It's that they lacked motivation. So as a teacher, mm-hmm. for these kids on the, you know, kind of on my lower end classes, I started once a week, instead of teaching them math, I did like motivation sessions where I'd be like, hey, what do you really want to do when you grow mm-hmm. up? And then it's like, would, would being awesome at math hurt that? Or would that help? Would that give you an mm-hmm. edge to, to achieve your goal? And you can only tell 14-year-olds, ask them so many times, what do you really want to be when you grow up <laughs> before you look at yourself in the mirror and go, I'm a junior high math teacher. Sure, this wasn't the dream, but but stand up comedy was, and so so it was really funny. I, I actually had to take my own advice. Uh, my my motivation Mondays worked on me probably more effectively than they did on any of my students. So I started doing started doing stand up because that was that was the dream, mm-hmm. and now and that was twenty years ago. So I've been doing stand up mm-hmm. comedy for the last twenty years. I've I've established myself as a pillar of the comedy scene in Salt Lake City and Provo in yeah, the smallest stand-up comedy markets in the world. I am a gi- I am the biggest fish in the smallest pond. But but it's also exciting. I mean in terms of just things that are popping right now, um I have a I have a show it's basically a monthly show that I've been doing since 2018 called Comedy mm-hmm. Church and we actually just got picked up by a comedy streaming service called Mint Comedy and uh in 2 weeks we're supposed to have our first streamed show for Comedy wow. Church, which has Con- nothing congrats. to do with accounting at yeah. all. Well, <laughs> so. so I guess, how, how do you balance your time as a controller and a comedian? The, oh, here's it's, the trick is this. The trick of, bal- of work-life balance as mm-hmm. an accountant is to work in industry and not work at a firm. So I've been, mm-hmm. I've been at my job for 12 years. So it's not, and it's not that I don't have tons to do at the job, but a lot of it is just dealing with it. so much. I I've been able, you know, I've got my, I've got my tech deck that works marvelously for me. So I've got a team mm-hmm. of robots that are doing, that are doing yeah. my day job. And when the robots can't handle stuff, I swoop in to do it. But then what, what that means is that, it, it, when everything's rolling right at the day job, I have I have a lot of discretionary time while I'm still getting my my job done there. When I mean it's it's that's tough. a note I, for everyone on this call who is listening to this. Make sure you automate your day job. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And there's no reason that you can't do it. There, it, it, I mean, it takes some time up front, obviously, to find the yep. stuff that works for you. But yeah, you got to do that. So that's. So again, you know, it's not that I don't have my my whole busy season. It's different than at a firm. My I, mm-hmm. mine starts you know mid December with stuff I can do to start closing the books early, and then yep. it's closing them, getting all the. I do tons of pick and shovel work for the firm that actually prepares our taxes, but mm-hmm. that's a lot of stuff I got to do on my end, getting stuff ready for them, and then going through the the review process we have yeah. for our books. But once I'm out of that, like I said, a lot of it's just making sure that the ship's running smoothly and if the ship's running smoothly then i've got some i've got some time to to pursue this other stuff that's awesome and so so how does like this you know experience in accounting and finance influenced your comedy and vice versa the well i i mean again it depends on how you want to look at it yeah there's a in 2012 that's when I really started leaning on mm-hmm. the fact that I'm a comedian. So, so not just doing stuff, not do, just doing comedy for the accounting profession. Mm-hmm. That's that's been huge because yep. I mean, if you think about it, I was a teacher. I'm a stand-up comedian, and there's this need for continuing education in the accounting yeah. profession. So that was that was a no-brainer <laughs> to just get figure out how to make that work. So that was a huge thing. But when you look at it just from the comedy side, I started doing my like my club set. Was like, hey, I'm a I'm a CPA, 
and everybody does taxes and everybody has this weird impression of what accountants are supposed to do. So I, I wrote, I had an entire headlining set where I mm -hmm. could all, my entire set was business and accounting jokes for, you know, 45 minutes mm. to an hour. And the funny <laughs> thing is I, I feel like my stuff was just rock solid, but you go to a comedy club on a Saturday for yep. the late show and you have a bunch of drunk frat boys and they're, and they're into it, but only maybe for about 20 minutes. And then finally mm -hmm. it's like, I, you know, I, I get it. We get it. <laughs> you do. You, you know a lot about taxes now, you know, tell me some dick jokes. Can I say dick jokes on this? I'm, I, I think so. so. You can bleep yeah. it out. <laughs> All right. Uh, two last questions in the comedy piece before we move on. I want to talk about okay. a lot of fraud. Okay. Uh, it sounds like some good stories there. Um, are any of your coworkers fans of the of the podcast of, of, of the comedy? Have your did oh, they come to your shows? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I've got. Yeah. They're 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 big. And and the weird thing is, is at work because like, mm -hmm. I, I mean, bottom line, I'm you know I. I'm a controller. I'm part yeah. of the business and finance team of this company. And and we're not a very big company. So a lot of times I am the entire business mm -hmm. and finance team. So I'll go to these meetings that seem like kind of a big deal. And if I'm with a coworker, I, I like to I like to I like screw around, but in a way where it's like the the like my coworker gets it that I'm screwing around, but mm -hmm. these guys that we're with have no they they it's not even on their radar. They don't understand. Yeah that I even did anything that should be funny at all. But this guy, this knucklehead go mm -hmm. then he goes, "Ah, oh, he's just he's messing around." I was like, "They didn't they didn't know anything. They didn't know they had no idea what I was doing." He's like, mm -hmm. "He's a stand-up comedian." And uh and then all of a sudden there's this weird expectation that I'm going to be this hilarious guy while we're trying to negotiate a 12 million dollar bank loan <laughs> with the bankers. Uh Do you ever at, tell jokes in these uh these serious meetings? I, yes and no. I mean, a lot of times people are like, oh, you're a comedian, tell me a joke. And it's like, no, that's not, that's kind of not how stand up comedy works. I can tell you street jokes that are, you know, yeah. just like the jokes everybody knows. So I've, I've got some of those and which are hilarious. But it, but it's a weird, it's the weird, you know, you talk to any stand up comic and a lot, a lot of us are hesitant to lead with I'm a, you know, when you're in just a normal social situation mm -hmm. to lead with, I'm an accountant. Cause it's like, Oh, then dance for us dancing <laughs> poodle. And it's like, no, no. How about, how about not? Do you sing? Maybe you sing me a song. I'll tell you a joke. Let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, so, so maybe we'll save a joke for the end. Maybe we can I'll finish the joke. If you're really feeling, <laughs> okay. feeling motivated. So, all right. so Greg, as, as we mentioned at the top, you've taught and created a ton of CP courses a lot of these have been focused on fraud and ethics. And so is there any reason in particular you're drawn to these sub subjects besides being personally involved in somewhat questionably fraudulent activities at your day job? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I, in hindsight, it makes a lot of sense why I was so interested in fraud. I don't, this wasn't like a, mm -hmm. a front of my mind, like decision tree kind of thing, mm -hmm. but like now we there's an entire in, like entertainment industry based on true crime and mm -hmm. really a lot of fraud teach like a lot of the continuing education any kind of education you have about fraud it's really just true crime stories and unpacking them to go what could we have done to either have prevented this or to have detected it earlier and that's that's just true crime. There's fascinating stories out there, and I and I love and, and and I think the other thing, and this and this goes to the ethics as well. I'm very interested in the psychology behind human behavior. So with fraud, I love I love it whenever I can get an inside story of like what what motivated the person to commit the fraud, the, you know, in the fraud triangle, and I that's you know. So tell listener. me more about this fraud triangle. Okay, the, fr the fraud triangle is this idea uh, that, that most most accounts get exposed to pretty early in their education, where mm -hmm. three three components have to exist for fraud to occur. So the first one is there has to be opportunity to commit fraud. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So it would be, and that that's the easiest one. If there's no way for someone to commit a fraud, I can't steal from Goldman Sachs because there's no opportunity for for Greg Kite to steal anything <laughs> from Goldman Sachs. So so if if there's a huge scandal at Goldman Sachs, I'm in the clear. Nobody's coming after me because there's no to opportunity. Your keynoting their next partner conference uh, as, right. a, as a stand-up comedian, right? Yeah, then. exactly. Then 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 it's on. But until they they hire, so hire me and then throw me under the bus, Goldman Sachs. That'd be a fun story. And then, so opportunity has to exist. And then the other thing is motivation there. You have to mm-hmm. have some sort of motivation to, to, do, to commit the fraud. I contend that motivation is never zero. There's always, it, that's just human behavior. We, we want to have money and things. So motivation is never zero, but motivation fluctuates a lot. So you can have someone who, you know, financial statement fraud is often perpetrated by executives who are under this immense pressure to hit the you know the the profit goals set by the the market watchers uh you know the expectations for their company or else the mm-hmm. shares are going to tank yep. they're under this massive pressure that's so if you've got more pressure you're more likely to commit fraud the third part of the fraud triangle this is the, and this is the psychology part of it is rationalization if you have opportunity and you have the motivation to commit fraud, you also have to be able to say, why is this okay for me to take this money? What's, what's my, what, how am I going to still be able to look mm-hmm. at myself in the mirror and say, hey, I'm not a, I'm not a giant piece of crap. And, that's, mm-hmm. and I love that part of fraud is going, how did, how did you do that? Um, what was the, what was the internal dialogue? Mm -hmm. And then that's a huge part of my ethics training too, is there's way there, uh, there's, uh, uh, behavioral psychologists and behavioral economists who have studied Mm -hmm. specifically ethical behavior and gone, here's some things that nudge people towards more ethical behavior. Here's things that nudge people towards less ethical behavior. And what I've found by studying that is all of that stuff is just them messing with people's ability to rationalize their bad behavior. The more that someone's able to rationalize it, the more likely they are to commit to, to engage in unethical behavior. But that the ethics side of it, and that's what I look at in my courses, is mm-hmm. how can how what what's what has psychology taught us to make us not be able to rationalize fraud. So that yeah. that stuff endlessly fascinating for me. Do you, you want to share I'm, a couple of examples of those like, you know, things in, from the courses on psychology of what rationalizes fraud? Yeah, absolutely. The, the one of the one of the best ones, I mean in terms of how you of your ability to rationalize fraud, mm-hmm. there's this guy his name's Dan Ariely. He's a he's a fantastic he's a mm-hmm. he's a behavioral economist and he's he's actually the the book he's best known for is called Predictably Irrational. He's got two chapters in mm-hmm. there on his experiments on how to uh, on eth- business ethics. But then those two chapters spawn an entire book called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, and the entire book is just him talking about his experiments that he's done on people and their their ethical behavior. So one of the things that he found, so he he had he the way he tested people's ethical behavior was like this: is he he gave a control group. Excuse me. He gave a control group a test. Uh, it was like a math test, and the math wasn't hard. It was just super time consuming, and it's like you'll get paid for every answer you get correct. Mm-hmm. And with his control group, he found that the average score was seven. So if he was paying a, a dollar per correct answer, he had to pay most people seven bucks to do that to do that test. And then he did it again, where he gave pe- where, where the second group they didn't grade their own paper. He's like, here, so take the test. Here's the answer key. And then actually write your score on a piece of scratch paper and then shred the answer key and your worksheet and the test and just take a scrap of paper that has nothing but your score to the proctor and they'll pay you. So obviously cheating was totally and the and and here's what's crazy. So the maximum so it was a 20 question test. The average score was seven when people just under you know the the normal test taking circumstances, mm-hmm. when cheating was possible. Well, I mean, it'd be interesting to know for you. What do you think that score went up to? From seven to what? When people can um, cheat? What do you think? Um, nine. Oh, you're, and you're you're more conservative than most people. When I do this this live, people are going twenty. Everybody everybody said twenty. It took twenty dollars. <laughs> it went to twelve. It wow. went from seven to twelve huh. is what it went to. And and that and, and right there that indicates because they had and this is this is why it's called behavioral economics too yep. because. Rational economics says, hey, there's zero consequences for you if you take all the money. So so mm. traditional economics would predict that everybody would just say, yeah. oh, I got a perfect score. Thanks. 
give me my money and I'm going to, I'm going to leave. But they went to 12 because that shows, Hey, I know I can cheat and I'm going to assume everybody's going, everybody's going to steal all the money. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm these not guys bad. are bad. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just, I just went to 12. Yeah. These guys all went to 20. I'm sure of it. I just went to 12. So, so that, that shows that. But then here's what he yeah. did is he, he had a, a group that he, he had somehow it was a cohort of atheists that he had them swear on a Bible that they wouldn't cheat on the test. Okay. And then he t- had them take the test. And I think that's hysterical. And and what he found w- through doing that was it eliminated cheating, which I thought was weird. I thought, I mean, I guess my, you know, you kind of think of the stereotypical uh, atheist, especially because he's a college professor. So these are all college kids. And yeah. I go, you know, I feel like, yeah, any, any, it's like, I'm a, I'm a proud atheist. Make yep, me yep. swear on a Bible. I'm going to steal all your money. It eliminated cheating. It, huh. They did, they did not cheat after these atheists swear on a book that they don't believe in uh-huh. that they weren't going to cheat. He did a couple other things. One, he had a, a, a group. He didn't, you know, he didn't know their orig- religious affiliation, but he had him brainstorm as many of the 10 commandments as they could. And then he had them take the test where they could cheat. It eliminated cheating. He had a third group where before taking the test, he had them sign a little statement that says, I understand that this test falls under the purview of the MIT honor code and sign that and then take the test. Eliminated cheating, even though MIT doesn't have an honor code. He had them sign their name to a saying that they would ascribe to something that he made up. So so the the lesson here is, you know, having some sort of like ethical reference point for anyone, yeah. it doesn't matter what their background is, is reminds people to to not cheat. Yeah, it's yeah, it's basically says I I understand it's clear that I can cheat on this. Somehow I had an honest reflection on am I on just yeah am am I the kind of what kind of person am I? And then if you have that honest reflection, then you go yeah I can't. The rationalization goes 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 away. Yeah. is what he found. So, so that's that's a really good segue to like what are like it sounds like that's a great control to put in place of having people sign like I'm not gonna you know I, I'm gonna be an honest employee or whatever it might be. Um, I'm sure that people do that in their their you know, handbook when they sign up with a company, but you know some sort of r- routine reminder of people's you know commitment to ethical behavior. Right. Well, and in in the Sarbanes Oxley Act, they they started requiring mm-hmm. that that uh, that the C suite uh, started. To, to sign off on their financial statements, yeah. but they had him sign off on the financial statements after they were prepared. And his, so his, his research is more, no, you need to make sure that they sign off like at the beginning of the process mm-hmm. of, of making that happen and go, yeah, these are, these are accurate. Then, then you're kind of in this bubble of, of more ethical behavior until they're, the way, they're finished the being process, prepared. Yeah. But but I think and and the trick too because I've thought about this how could you how could you apply that to to a business setting and I remember back to when I was getting my master's degree mm-hmm. I had to take a business ethics class and I was in this program they called it an executive uh, MBA program mm-hmm. yeah. so we took one class at a time for five weeks and just it was hardcore just on that one subject you're done you take the test you go to the next class so only and so for five weeks I was doing nothing but reading HBR cases, like ethics cases and, and analyzing them. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, I, at like by the end of that five weeks, I was making amends. Like I was an alcoholic on step nine. Mm-hmm. I was like anything that I thought was questionable mm-hmm. that I'd ever done. I'm trying to oh, make man. it right because all that I did for five weeks was just reflect on ethical behavior. So that's, so I think one of the things you, one, one of the things I suggest to people mm-hmm. in terms of using that finding to increase ethical behavior at work is yeah, have, have a required HBR ethics uh, study by read this article and we're going to discuss it at the next staff meeting. Mm. That'd be huge in terms of making people, you know, do that once a quarter, once mm. a year, something yeah. like that. I think that'd make a massive difference in terms of companies, ethical behavior. Wow. So, um, you know, beyond this sort of like ethical, tra- you know, training or commitment, like what are some other basic systems and controls that we can implement to help prevent fraud recurring in the mm. first place? I'm sure you have a bunch from your time in your executive MBA or as a controller. Yeah, well, and and yeah, the, the one, when we look at internal controls that mm-hmm. can be put in place to prevent fraud, the basic, like the, the real first step is separation of duties. Mm-hmm. And and it's so funny because we when we unpack these frauds, like you know, like mm-hmm. there's a real famous fraud in Dixon, Illinois, where there was yeah. a 
tiny city of 15,000 and the controller stole like 53 million dollars just wow. her yeah, just yeah. a one uh, in, in this tiny tiny city it uh-huh. was over the course of 20 years mm-hmm. and so and so I I joke around where it's like she basically stole like 50 cents a day from every from every citizen for 20 years. So it's like for less than a cup of coffee for 20 years, you can help somebody commit a 50, the biggest municipal fraud in us history. But she was a one man band. There was no internal controls. Mm-hmm. There was no separation of yeah. duties. And so separation of duties basically says, this, yeah. and that, well, that's what, that's what saved my boss's bacon. Mm-hmm. And that's why I said he, he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, no criminal charges were ever brought against him because he, he had the foresight to go, I'm gonna. I will not give myself the authorization mm-hmm. ab- uh, ability. I can't sign any checks here. Mm-hmm. That's a very simple separation of duties. Now, obviously, he was still able to navigate around that. Another thing is you separate out like who can who can request mm-hmm. a payment, who can authorize a payment, and then who reconciles the the bank mm-hmm. accounts from which the payments are made. So those that's that's really bare bones what needs to happen is those three things. So you got yeah. three different people who are looking at all expenditures. If all those are in one person's pot, they can do whatever they want and never get caught. Yeah. And not. and we and so we find that from from little tiny organizations like the municipal government mm-hmm. in Dixon, Illinois, all the way up to a guy who stole eight million dollars from ING, like one of the biggest insurance organizations on the planet they they and and the funny thing is they did have internal controls but he was able he he was actually there was motivations within the company for mm-hmm. him to skirt those internal controls with his coworkers just to be able to get their job done but again it was an internal control it was a separation of duties problem for him as well yeah that's really interesting i think about that a lot around like i mean i, I work at team pay and team pay you know spin management space where you have a request and approval and so the, the person making the request is different than the person approving it. So you have this sort of check in the middle before I can actually go buy something. Um, exactly. And I think I think even in the context of here, you see this with you know check fraud, kiting, all sorts of things like that. Of like there might be someone approving something even like this. This um, the, uh, sounds like the the owners were actually writing the check, but they didn't have the context of what they're actually approving. And so even exactly. though there's a, there's separation of duties, that sort of like business context for the person who's technically part of the separation of duties or the approver or whatever you, whatever say you needs to understand like, what does this really mean? So that's how it happens. These big companies with like, you know, the check fraud, it's like, you know, an invoice gets sent to, you know, Google and it gets routed to a manager to approve. I'm like, "Uh, I guess someone on my team bought this. Sure. And of course they now have paid an an invoice to some, you know, uh, you know, you know, non-vendor for the company. And so you see this all the time, I think around like, even though you have the separation of new duties, does it, is it actually working? And does that person have the you know authority, context, awareness, time to actually understand what the responsibility is here and why that's important and you know what they should actually be checking for. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's definitely not it's definitely not a, a be all end all. You know, your frauds won't occur if you have proper separation duties. Again, my my company is even yeah. a great example of that. But by doing that, you're I think at, at least what you're going to say is you're going to make it more difficult. Mm-hmm for someone to to carry to to perpetrate fraud and more likely for them to become to be found out and that's that's the other thing that we find is that a lot of times cuz cuz you know there's research that shows that the vast majority of frauds are discovered through a tip from a coworker mm-hmm. and and a lot of times what it is is there's a hiccup whoever's system of stealing money there's a hiccup in it and a coworker goes wait a second that's weird and that's that's what happened with the Dixon Illinois case with this lady is that she they were just in a time crunch to get some financials mm-hmm. prepared and she did have an assistant and that assistant just went to the bank and said hey I need statements from all our accounts give them all to me and there was these hidden accounts that she wasn't aware of wow. because in the past her the, the lady who was stealing the money says you, when you go to the bank you have to tell them exactly what bank accounts you mm-hmm. need information from and that person didn't know about these so the bank was like oh here's all the information and she's like wait a second wow i've never heard of this account and she took it to the mayor and then all of a sudden it blows up the guy at ing mm-hmm. that that one was even that, that yeah there's a there's a couple of funny ways that he should have been caught when he had a hiccup in his account but he got crazy lucky and just mm-hmm. dodged a bullet but with with then it was more like somebody was like this guy 
this guy's make he says he's he's really good at gambling but he's he doesn't seem smart enough to, mm-hmm. to be really good at gambling and so you're like yeah, i'm gonna look into a few things and then all of a sudden it's like oh my gosh this guy's you know after four years they're yeah. like this this guy who went from being just a normal dude to driving fancy sports mm-hmm. cars they're like oh that's he's not good at gambling yeah. he's stealing so yeah well you know in, in like the if you're if you i came from investment banking before i got into finance and like on the sales and trading side you have to take mandatory vacations where you can't even like check your email or touch anything because someone has to run your book for you for a couple of weeks mm-hmm. i think that's a great idea for all controllers and accountants to get mandatory vacations but for that reason right like you'll have someone else ultimately going to have to do your job for a bit to actually see are you you know is everything up to snuff and you know, is is there anything you know sort of questionable behavior there? And I think that's the sort of thing that I think, I think every controller should advocate for is uh, two mandatory yeah. two week vacation. Yep, absolutely. And that's and it's funny because that is an internal control to mm-hmm. to make sure to to rotate mm-hmm. people's duties to other other people. One of the red flag behaviors of fraud that that the ACFE, the the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, mm-hmm. has has identified is if you have someone who is unwilling to to take a vacation. Mm-hmm. That's like that's that's one of the red flags. It's like, which is so weird because you go, okay, you're stealing money so that you can live the good life, but the unintended consequences so you, you have to live with is you can never take a day off. Yep. So you got a lot or of money. Or ever but, leave your company, like, and right. you're never going to be able to get out of that. Exactly, exactly. You got to keep keep the ball rolling. That was yeah. and, and that was funny too. There was another. There's another fraud of a nun mm-hmm. who uh, stole money from the Catholic elementary school that she was working at, and again did it over ten years and was never discovered. Um, again, very much a, the fact that there was no separation of duties, mm-hmm. and so uh, she was she was discovered right after she retired and at at the age of eighty something. So it's like you know, same thing. She she got discovered like yeah. it sounds. I think if I remember the case, like within two weeks wow. of her retiring, they were like, "Oh, this is horrible." Yeah, and 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 then she, you know, and, and gosh, it was it was like eighty. It was I can't remember how much. It was like eight hundred thousand dollars, maybe. Mm-hmm. I I know there was an eight in there somehow, and it was also yeah, I think it was eight hundred thousand dollars that she had mm-hmm. stolen. And she's eighty something years old, and it's just like, and she'd taken a vow of poverty, which was ironic. <laughs> but also, I think if if your if your skill set is none stuff, mm. and you have to pay back eight hundred thousand dollars of restitution from starting at age eighty five or eighty eight or however she old, it's like that's not that's not going to happen. Yeah, um, well, there'll be some sort of forgiveness there um, by someone there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, this guy, I think we have time for one more good fraud story for you. So what's your favorite fraud story you'd love to share with the audience? Oh, I, I think, well, I, I think my favorite fraud story is the one I've been telling you about from ING. Mm-hmm. But another one that's that's pretty fantastic is 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 a, it, they, they call it Pappy Gate. That was, mm-hmm. that was like the weird... Uh, like media name for it, but there was a there was a distillery in uh, Kentucky mm-hmm. that may, it was called the Buffalo Trace Distillery, yep. and and there are you are you much of a connoisseur of the of the whiskeys? Uh, Buffalo Trace is a pretty high end whiskey. Yeah, and well, and they they also would distill a Pappy Van Winkle. That's how mm-hmm. they. Okay. That's and Pappy Van Winkle is a very small batch whiskey that not only sell, like I think if you buy a bottle at a store, it's like in the hundreds of dollars, but mm-hmm. then the secondary market, like people will buy, it's almost like scalpers. Mm-hmm. It's like whiskey scalpers where, where in the secondary market, you can get like thousands of dollars for a it's bottle. Like sneakerheads, but pa- for whiskey. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so, so at this distillery and, it, and it's one of these funny things too, because distilleries, part of how they get their swagger as a distillery and how, how alcohol gets their, you know their brand and and maintains their brand mm-hmm. is like we here's the whiskey we've been making since 1814 and we haven't changed anything with how we make our whiskey we make it the way mis- whiskey was meant to be made by you know with without tea, with no shirts and just overalls and you know that kind, <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing and and the funny thing is that that attitude apparently is is pervasive throughout the business where they're also hesitant to update their managerial styles and their controls mm. and things like that. And so at this Buffalo Trace distillery, it was common practice for people just to go, okay, 
this bottle's not, you know, this, this, everybody say this bottle fell off the shelf and broke and then they take it home with them. And that's, <laughs> that happens on, on the regular and they'll, you know, and, and even, and it goes from that to also, you know, they have a batch that just finished. So they'll call everybody in and they'll, they'll go through a, I don't know, a, a a half a barrel of whiskey just tasting it uh-huh. to go yeah this tastes like how this is supposed to taste and we're all bombed and it's all cool and it's you know and the company's paying for it there was another and and with this guy so a guy mm-hmm. stole like 200 bottles of this pappy van winkle which is like uh, you know mm-hmm. esti- that alone was estimated to be you know well over a hundred thousand dollars worth of inventory mm-hmm. that he stole um but but and it's so funny because everybody wants to make it like this this uh, the, this masterminds of mm-hmm. of criminal behavior where they got they got the guy who'd take it and put it in his truck and he'd take it to another guy who'd store it in his in his barn and then a third guy would take you know take these kegs and he'd roll it down he'd he'd go on a dirt side road when he's mm-hmm. between places and he'd roll the keg down a down a a, a, a ladder into his into somebody else's barn where they'd store that. And then another guy who had, who, who played these high end poker games with people who loved high end whiskey, who could fence all the stolen products. And it's like, when you break it up, it it's not, it's just a bunch of knuckleheads who have no idea what they're doing and there's no internal controls over inventory. Mm-hmm. So they're absolutely just able to just go, Hey, I, 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 I put a case of stuff, you know, in my, in the back of my truck and put a tarp over it so nobody saw it. And can you sell it? Yeah, I think I can sell. Okay, cool. Let's do that and split it. Okay, cool. And it's just it's just all these mm-hmm. all these uh, these knuckleheads. And and the the crazy twist at the end of the story is there was so it became such a high profile story throughout the country that the law enforcement just needed to nab somebody and say mm-hmm. we got the bad guy. And in hindsight, it's highly suspect as to whether or not they really got the guy who stole this stuff because they were trying to get information mm-hmm. from folks and they would offer them amnesty for information against the guy that they thought stole all this stuff. So uh, they're thinking uh, that they inadvertently oh, gave man. amnesty to the guy who really stole all this stuff just to put, and, and there and, and it's not that this other guy didn't steal it. Yeah, yeah. Everybody was stealing stuff. And so they were able to put somebody in jail for doing it. But like they said, I think when you hear the accounts, most people are like, yeah, we think we got, we probably got the wrong. We got yeah, somebody who did something bad. But it was I mean, the wrong I think that's way. probably not, like going back to maybe what you were talking about with, um, you know, the study that happened. Like, so much is about the culture around what's appropriate behavior. Like, I've talked to, you know, I, I we, we talk, you know, in my role, Team Pay, I talk to a lot of companies, and controllers, and CFOs. And every once in a while, I hear some crazy stories about like their annual TEMT, uh, travel entertainment budget, for, you know, for the company is something like, $12,000 per employee per year. We're like, what's this actually really going to? And it's just a culture of people spending money. And that's, and you just kind of create this sort of like, everyone else does it, you know, sort of like it's, it's all good culture. And whether it's actually fraud or just maybe like waste and abuse or whatever you want to say, or just being bad business practices, you know, that's that sort of culture, you know, starts from the top and trickles all, all the way down. Right, which again, it, and that's another thing. You know, wrapping back to the to the ethics presentations that I do, one of the other things that I tell people to do to to help minimize the rationalization side of fraud is I is I, I talk about uh, core values mm-hmm. at any kind. And, and if you're talking to CPAs, pretty much every CPA firm says one of our core values is we hold ourselves to the highest level of integrity mm-hmm. in the profession. And and me, I go, I call BS on any core value unless you have a story where you've sacrificed money to back up that core value. Cause otherwise, it, and, and, and there's a HBR, there's somebody with yep. HBR who did like a nice thing where they said, well, there's, there's core values and there's aspirational values. Yeah. And I think ethics, unless you have a story to back it up, ethics is a, an aspirational value, something you yeah. want to be. True. Well, I, I think that's, I mean, I think it's a big difference. I mean, I, I heard this the other day, um, as another conference, um, and the difference between values and virtues is the values are the things you believe, the virtues are the things you do. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And so like that, and, and having the stories of like, these are the stories of th- like examples of the, the, the lore of what people have done before to have integrity in their roles. Like that's, you know, t- highlighting the actual behaviors, what people, what's that, what's actually mean to be ethical. And like, that's, that's the behavior of like, all, you know, all, you know, always, always doing the, you know, doing the right thing. Right. And that's, and that's exactly right. Cause, cause if, I mean, again, go back to the whole idea of 
what if your company started looking at one HBR ethics mm -hmm. case a quarter? And then people are like, why do we do this? Why are we spending the time doing this? Is because ethics is a big damn deal around here. That's a, that's an easy easy way to mm -hmm. start. And, and and it goes back to even like the 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 COSO uh, internal control framework, where the tone at the top, management, you know, the control environment, management's ideas about control. That's the most effective. They they say that's the most mm -hmm. effective internal control. The another thing, if you're making a story, I think back about about the company that I work at because the CPA firm knew what my boss was doing and they were classifying that as a loan. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine anybody feeling awesome about that. If, But my company was a bit, we paid a lot of fees to that accounting firm. And if the accounting wow. firm said, you know what, this does even even if they're like going, we think that we're we're you know we're weaving our way through the standards mm -hmm. and this this works out and that we're not culpable. If they said, you know what, this still feels sketchy, we're gonna fire this client because we just don't want to be associated with anybody who's doing yeah. sketchy stuff. And then they're giving up ninety thousand dollars worth of fees. You know, we're talking, you know, two this was like two thousand nine money yeah. of of ninety thousand dollars worth That's of fees. Lot. They give that up and people go, why aren't we doing that engagement anymore? And this is going, well, we just we just had a bad feeling that those guys were doing something that they sketchy. Were sketchy and we and we value integrity and ethics to the point where we don't even want to be associated with someone mm -hmm. who's being sketchy so what's more important to us is this core value of ethics mm -hmm. above the fees that we were getting from that client and then yeah. you so you do something like that you create a story like that but then you got to tell that story over, over and you got to milk it for everything it's worth going remember when we fought remember when we fired that one client because yep. they were sketchy yeah that's it yeah. but then that's how it becomes your culture and that's how you get that culture of ethical behavior yeah well, Greg, I mean, this has been so fascinating. Uh, insight into ethics, fraud, comedy. Thanks so much for being such a great guest. Where can we find you on social media or where should they come and get in touch with you? And um, what's the best for everyone listening to this? I'd, I'd say probably the best places to find me is on social media. Um, Twitter, I'm at Greg Kite on Twitter. Uh, LinkedIn, uh, I, I post, uh, you know, cartoons, mm -hmm. uh, everything we've talked about, all the all the side hustles that I have, yeah. I post it on LinkedIn. I'm just Greg Kite CPA mm -hmm. on there. Spell spell Kite incorrectly, like my ancestors did, with a Y instead of an I. And then uh, and then, like I said, on Instagram, ex uh, Exposure Drafts. That's that basically has pretty much my whole my entire catalog. Okay. Of, uh, of cartoons. So those are great Looking places to, to find me. And yeah. where can we listen to your Oh My Fraud podcast? That uh, You can listen to that uh, wherever you get your your podcasts, uh, you know, the, the usual Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, yep. Spotify, all okay. that kind of stuff. It's it's out there and, and can be found. And of course, please put, uh, subscribe to this podcast, Awkward Conversations, uh, so you don't miss the next episode with our um, great guests. Thanks a lot, Greg. Hey, it was a blast. Thank you for having me.